Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. Net Rocks, episode 1226, with guests Steve Smith and Brenda Enrick. Recorded Monday, November 23rd, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's Net Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here again. Uh, we're going to be talking craftsmanship today. I love it. You know, I love these shows that we do with Steve Smith and Brendan. And uh, we're, we, we're, they got a new calendar. But first, before we talk about any of that, I got a story for you for Better No Framework. So roll oh the my. music. All right, buddy. What do you got? In the interest of time, I'll keep it short. So, uh, we're recording this show on the 23rd of November. Right. Monday. And, in uh, 2015. And last Saturday night, the band and I played at our local haunt here in New London, Daddy Jack's, which is a great place right on Bank Street. Now we pack a 10 piece band into this little room. <laughs> I bet you guys are cozy, but not on that little stage. And my mother and her boyfriend, oh. who's almost 80. She's wow. pushing 80. She comes out to see us. She sits right in front of the bandstand with people dancing and stuff. And she can, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not too loud because she can't hear anyway, you know. So, <laughs> but she comes out for one song and then she goes home. It's the s- sweetest thing in the world. She just Aww. wants to see her boys. What song was it? Got to Get You Into My Life. Oh, you did a cover. The Earth, Wind, and Fire version. Oh, because you've got horns. With the horns. Yeah. Somebody in the audience did a video of it, and uh, I took that video and uh, cleaned it up a little bit and you know, th- with audio and made it sound a little bit better and posted it to YouTube. So tinyurl.com slash fbrosrock, like F Bros Franklin Brothers rock, F Bros rock. And um, the, you're going to see a couple of things. At the beginning of the video, the percussionist, Che, Carter Falsa is his name, somebody comes over to him and tells him something, and he leaves. And then a minute later, there's an ambulance outside. Turned out his girlfriend passed out because it was too hot and there were too many people. And so she passed out. She was fine, but she sort of fainted. And so that's going on. So you got like the flashing lights of the ambulance and people are dancing. It's a, it was a very kind of a cool moment. So there you go. You get a little taste of the, the big bad Franklin brothers pan. That's cool, man. I'm going to have to watch that. Yeah. Watch it later. All right, man. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment, of course, off of 1214, the last show we did on craftsmanship, the one we did with Scott Nimrod, which is breaking all the records for comments. They just keep on coming. They do, don't they? Well, we just must have hit some buttons there, you know? Um, Scott should be proud. Yep. 
People talking about yelling at the at their car, that you know, freaking their wife out. It's hilarious. Anyway, this comment <laughs> comes from Ryan Russin. He says, "Can I have an amen?" <laughs> this discussion really strikes a nerve for those of us that care about software quality and have to fight for improvement nearly everywhere we go. Shops that don't value unit testing are typically terrified to refactor or make changes to the code base. Chances are the code is poorly structured, making new bugs likely, and manual testing takes too long. So all the nasty 500-line functions are treated like sacred relics. Yep. In shops like these, suggestions to improve code quality with static code analysis, code contracts, unit tests, cleaning up compiler warnings, and even widely accepted coding standards are met with hostility hmm. from the old guard, typically manifest in the, quote, we don't have time for that right. argument. If you can find employment somewhere, craftsmanship and openness to new ideas trumps ego, fear, and laziness, consider yourself very lucky. I don't know. Yeah. I think he's got a, he's got kind of touched a nerve with Ryan, do you think? Just a little? A little bit. <laughs> Ryan, I don't know if we can help your workplace, but we could certainly give you a cool mug to drink from. So a .NET Rocks <laughs> mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, we tweet. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. We love tweets. We eat tweets for breakfast. So please don't hesitate to send them. So let's introduce our two guests today. Steve Smith has been on the show many times. He's an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. Steve has published several courses on Pluralsight covering domain-driven design, solid design patterns, and software architecture. He is a Microsoft MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer. Steve is available for mentoring, training, and application assessment engagements through his site, ardalis.com, A-R-D-A-L-I-S.com. Also with Steve today is Brendan Enrich, a principal software engineer with Clear Measure, focusing a great deal of his time on agile and software craftsmanship methodologies. Brendan is a proponent of strong development communities. He's also a Pluralsight author, and along with two other community members, Brendan helped found the Hudson Software Craftsmanship User Group in 2009. He's also involved in organizing other free educational events in the Cleveland and Akron, Ohio area. Brendan is a conference and user group speaker who enjoys running workshops and hands-on labs with anyone willing to learn. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thanks, Carl. Glad to be back. Yep. Thanks, Carl. Richard? And here we are with another calendar. A little bit differently done this time, right? Yeah, this one's been an experience. Our first uh, Kickstarter, actually. So how did that go? Uh, not as smoothly as we would have liked, but, uh, you know, we learned a lot. Um, but and it was ultimately successful, so that was awesome. So what were the, what were the, 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 the gotchas? Well, the big early concern that we ran into was actually uh, during the campaign itself, the 30-day uh, time period. There was concern a little bit there that we would not actually reach our funding goal, uh, but we did end up reaching that, and so that got us started. Uh, we ran into some other uh, challenging production issues that I'll let Steve talk about. Yeah, I mean, going in, we we talked during the uh, show last time about what our limit was that we were trying to get, um, and, and Brendan and I honestly were looking at each other during that show saying, is this what we said the limit was going to be? I thought we were going to make it lower. <laughs> that was, that was but, only back in June, gentlemen. It hasn't been that long. 
Oh, no, I know. But I mean, during that call, we we were saying, oh, I thought we were going to make it lower. Um, and we had just made the Kickstarter go live like 20 minutes before the call because we knew right. we were having the show. Um, and, and we had discussed making it lower and then having, you know, some some stretch goals. But we didn't actually implement it. Um, and so we, we had the original, you know, larger goal in there. Uh, and we were a little concerned that we might not be able to hit it. Uh, but as it turns out, we, we did, which, which was good. But that was one thing is like, you know, a little bit more, uh, prior planning on that and making sure that we were on the same page. One thing that would help with Kickstarter is that it does not allow a team based, uh, operation very effectively. So there's only one login and, and I had set it up for me to be the main point of contact. Um, which makes it a little more difficult to do a, a collaboration unless sure you share does. that out with everybody. Oh yeah. And then we had planned on our uh, designer that did the 2014 calendar, the last one we did because we didn't manage to do one last year mm-hmm. uh, for 2015. And and he was on board all through like the second quarter and before we decided to to do the Kickstarter and everything. Um, and and then he was just he had a lot of things going on and was busy, uh, and so. It wasn't until what early August that that he let us know like we were like okay we really need you to get started on this because um, he'd been you know confident that he could get to it and then he hadn't gotten to it um, and he finally told us I think in earlier mid August that he wasn't going to get to it and we're like okay so we better find someone else and you know we're trying to get the thing completed into the printer by October first right and that only left about six weeks mm-hmm. so that all was, of a sudden uh, you don't have a designer. Yeah. yeah, that was pretty much where we were left because most years our schedule is for the photos to be taken in July. Right. And so that was quite a bit behind where we normally are. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah, that was panic mode. Yeah, no kidding. And I, I know the situation you got into exactly. Everybody has the best of intentions in the world. He really did want to do it. You know, it was hard for him to admit that. That he hit his wall, that he just, there's no ability to it. If he, t- but he told you sooner, you would have been hunting sooner. Like it just, it's an easy trap to get into. Sure. Sure. Yep. And also, you know, people's first reactions to this may be, well, you know, it's just a calendar. How hard could it be? It's just a picture, right? But it's not the picture that takes so much time. It's the planning and it's the setup. I, you know, and, and not just time, but you have to assemble all the right props and, and do all of that stuff. How much time did it actually take to come up with the creative aspects of it? We didn't calculate it uh, or track it um, all that well because uh, you know there was there was a lot of time spent uh, going round and round with emails and and ad hoc meetings. And then um, our new designer Wendy, uh, who also did the photography, I'm not sure that she was tracking how much time she spent, but but it is a, a many many hours uh, of an endeavor. The other thing that's really challenging, and, and we did get some help from the community and, and from uh, you two, Carl and Richard, as well, was it's not always easy to visualize something that only makes sense in the realm of software. Right. right. It's so abstract. Yeah, it's kind of like Hollywood's problem of how do we make a movie about hackers that isn't just somebody sitting at a keyboard clacking away. Sure. Yeah. Well, the uh, yeah, like I, I think both Yagni and the Boy Scout rule, those are great ideas. How do you visualize them? And exactly. So, and so for those who don't know about this calendar, um, typically you illustrate anti-patterns, right? Yeah. Usually the, the, 
the visual is something that is is wrong because that tends to be more eye catching. Yeah. And then the, the title is either an anti pattern or a best practice. Okay. So, but yeah, the picture is definitely ways. the negative aspect of it. Always, because it's funny. Because <laughs> they're we funny. We have a they're couple where funny. we like uh, images that look nice and uh, they're not as funny, but they represent the principle really well. And so there are a couple of instances where we don't do the anti pattern as the picture. And those usually make it in only to our uh, standard software craftsmanship calendar. We alter between doing positive things and anti patterns. So, yeah. Now, the other thing we talked about back in June was you were going to use Feet Hub to, uh, to actually collect ideas from the Donna Rocks listeners and anybody else who wanted to participate. Yeah, and yeah. We, we did, and it actually worked quite well. We got a, a whole bunch of um, responses. I'll tell you how much in a second if I pull it up here. Yeah, when we were actually, uh, uh, I'll say brainstorming the ideas for all of our uh, calendar images that we ended up taking that are actually used in the calendar, yeah, uh, we actually went to that Feet Hub list, printed all those ideas out, and went through them in order until we had about, I'll say, probably 15 or 16 ideas that we thought would actually turn into uh you know, images that we could actually make yep. in some way. So, well, and the majority of this list was entered by you, Steve, which is fine, but it's neat to see some listeners actually entered some, which I think you, some of them, which you took. Oh yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're looking at it now too, but yeah, yeah. Um, we got 64 different ideas and, and over 200 votes for different ideas. Nice. And like Brendan was just saying, the, we tried to pick the ones that got the most votes, although some of them we, we really just couldn't, visualizer or make work with the calendar right tell don't ask i don't know how you'd visualize that <laughs> that's not easy to do or shipping is a feature like yeah. that's not easy to do those are tricky visualizations right and shipping is a feature we'd actually did in our very first calendar right um the visualization for that was just a a, a ship with a whole bunch of shipping containers on it right. so it wasn't you know clever so much as just trying to represent the idea in the picture. Although, you know, what would be funnier is a ship upside down. Yes. <laughs> Richard, for, you're a genius. That's, that's next year's, next year's one. You can bring it back. You need some ideas? Just call Richard. <laughs> you have these moments. But, all right, like I'm looking at Broken Window Effect, which had a bunch of votes, came from a listener from Daniel Marbach, and it, it made it in. And the picture's hilarious, the Broken Window picture. That that is that is awesome. That is a very nice building with every window broken on it. <laughs> Should we go through these one at a time like we usually do? Of course, that's fine. All right, let's start with January. The bus factor. Let's see how this all worked out here. So the bus factor came in with seven votes, like about tenth, fifteenth, twelfth on the list, and. What is the bus factor? Is it actually being hit by a bus? Uh, it doesn't have to be a bus. It could be getting hit by a bus, winning the lottery, finding some better job, in some way just leaving. Maybe you retire. Uh, the unforeseen right. circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. Your, your permanent removal from the project is pretty much all it takes right. for it to apply. Well, and, you, and your catchphrase there is better cancel Bob's projects. Just nobody else knows what Bob was working on. 
So those projects are effectively dead because, you know, bus. So is Bob sort of the, uh, the universal name for the, I mean, what is that? <laughs> I see that a lot. Oh, that's Bob. I, mean, uh, I don't know. It, it just came to mind as the tagline. I mean, it could have been any, any name, but it was like, you know, that team members project. Yeah. I think it's a but good you, one. You know, there's a statement right there. The idea that a team member owns a project per se, right? Yep. That, that's the issue is this should be a team's project. So it's not owned by any one person. And for those who like to imagine what we're seeing on the radio, um, you're seeing the front of a bus with a license plate O-U-C-H and a chalk outline on the road right in front. Yeah. However, I will point out a little inconsistency. The bus is parked next to other buses because you can see them on the left and the right and a little grass behind. And- <laughs> How did that bus hit that guy? Bob was walking right over the bus him. parking lot, and he got run over <laughs> while the bus was trying to leave to go to its route. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get technical with me. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It, it is actually kind of hard to get a bus to stop on a street so you can do a chalk outline photo with it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could imagine the bus driver wouldn't be so keen to do that, actually. Right. <laughs> yeah. I can think of lots of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> don't worry. It's going to be funny. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So the next one clearly ties in with the first. It does, I think. Because it's not just about Bob having like projects where he's the only team member. It's, it's also if an individual team member owns parts of that project, that no one else is allowed to touch or no one else understands. Right. So this is collective code ownership. And I got to ask, Steve, is that one of yours? Uh, no, that's one of uh, Wendy, our photographer's kids. Okay. I believe it could be something <laughs> she found on the street. I, yeah, I was pretty sure it was her kid. Okay. I don't know for certain either. All right. Whoever's kid was, somebody took something away from this kid who's not happy about it. She's clutching onto a doll and screaming. And the caption is, that's my code. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I think we've all worked with that developer that refuses to let anyone (laughs) dig into any of their code. Yeah. No looky. Actually, that's that's what I look like when my alarm goes off in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And you clutch your doll. Yeah. Only it's my pillow. Go away. (laughs) This is my sleep time. That's right. (laughs) Nice. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when it comes, I, you guys have strategies for how you break that down. How do you deal with that guy? With collective code ownership in a, in a team? Yeah. Uh, when, when, when you have a personality that's defensive of their code, which is really what it comes down to. Well, I mean, if you're able to do pair programming, that always helps because now nobody owns any of the code. Right. You know, pair with that individual, um, you know, they don't feel like it's theirs anymore so much as like you collaborated to to create it. Uh, And that helps break down a lot of barriers. I think in a lot of instances with this, it's really more about mitigating, you know, the risk of even getting to this situation. Because again, if you start with pairing and you start with that situation, no one ends up on this is my thing. And uh, an approach more like a Kanban pull model uh, as opposed to assigning tasks also right. tends to lead there a little bit 
because you can kind of just nudge people into working on a part of the system that someone else is starting to become an expert in so that you don't end up with the classic assignment of, oh, well, Bob's really good at connecting to this external system. Let's have Bob do it. And then Bob ends up being the only guy that knows how to do it. Right. When you start going that route, anyone that's prone to collective code ownership is going to develop this relationship with that code that they've been writing consistently. Poor Bob. Now, now that being said, sometimes Bob is, you know, a John Lennon of coding. He is a visionary. He's writing something that's extremely hard to do. So you're, he's probably going to need to write it. How do you mitigate that? Is that just all about the pairing that somebody's with them the whole time? Well, somebody's got to understand it well enough to test it too. Right. Uh, and if you're really fortunate, he's the John Lennon of t- unit testing his own code and writing awesome stuff, but <laughs> that's less likely. Uh, no. So if nothing else, you pair somebody up that's kind of making sure that it's doing the right thing um, and not just doing the thing right, uh, which is often a problem. Right. Yep. But, but also, you know, somebody else has to understand it. Like it is important to get it yeah, into somebody yes. else's mind so it can be well explained, well described and potentially better. Yes. Well, and, and how many times have you made something better because you were explaining it to someone that had no idea how to do it, but just the process of you explaining it yeah. made it so that you wrote better code. Well, that's well, the, the teacher's paradox, right? I mean, the, the best way to learn something is by teaching it to somebody yeah. else. Exactly. Exactly. And it also fights you. It, it's the best combat resource for thrashing. It's like you can't thrash when you're explaining to somebody else. Did you guys ever do group coding like the gang coding Woody Zool and those guys have done? We have in a, done it. in the past done like you're in a conference room. It's mm-hmm. up on the projector and, and the yeah. group of you working. Sure. Yeah, we've done that. And do, how does that work typically for you? It's good for code reviews and and like user group style things. I don't know that it's the most productive way to write code every day, but uh, it, it can be a good way to, to share knowledge. And it works for aspects of the system where it's really, really critical that you have not just a good design, but a fully agreed upon design. Right, interesting. Ah. Yeah. So, but lots of buy-in. I would almost think that it's very powerful in the early stages of a project then. Just helping the vision get aligned with everybody because we're all together in a room working through these sort of core pieces. Yeah, that can definitely help. Um, you know, one, one of the things you want to have is, is, uh, open communication and short feedback cycles. So the time between when you make a decision about how to implement something or how to design something until you get feedback that it was a good or a bad decision, uh, should be minimal. And if you're group coding like that or even just pairing, You'll you'll likely get that feedback instantaneously versus if it has to be you check it in, the testers do their thing, it goes through QA, it comes back, it gets rolled into the end of the sprint, it gets shipped. Now the customer gets a chance to see it. Oh, no, that's not what they really wanted. (laughs) Whereas if if the product owner or uh, representative is there in the room, like during the standups every day, and you're able to say, okay, I'm going to do it like this, they can explain right then. Oh, no, I really meant this other thing. Absolutely. Okay. Descriptive error messages. <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about. Let me let me describe this picture if I can. So it, you're in a doctor's office. There's a computer on the table in the corner, and uh, it, it it's a 
got Google eyes and a little googly eyes. I shouldn't say Google eyes, googly eyes and a little thermometer sticking out of its cartoon mouth. And so it kind of looks like a head with a, you know, a, a sick person. And so there's a doctor with a stethoscope around. You're looking over the doctor's shoulder. He's got a clipboard and on the clipboard says diagnosis equals sick. Well, thank you very much. So your, your, te- your caption is actually, well, that's a big help. Descriptive error message. Object, Object not, not found. found. <laughs> that is exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. This was actually a, uh, a suggestion that we actually got sent to us. So this is another one of the ones that was actually contributed uh, from outside the project. That's nice. very cool. And it's, and it's just so, I mean, the, the argument I've always had is the problem is the guy writing the error message knows what the problem is. Yeah. Yep. And, su- and it's super hard to actually describe it in a way for someone who doesn't know what the problem is. You know, there are so many little practices that people just ignore when they're writing code that could make things so much better. One of them is this, you know, helpful error messages. Um, obviously the, you know, the person usually can't do too much about it if it's sort of a system level message. But there are other messages that where you can be quite helpful, like your uh, a, a message we used to have back in the 90s and 2000s is this thing called disk full. I don't know if anybody has ever had that message <laughs> listening to this show. What but, does that mean? Yeah, we used to have smaller disks and yes, they filled up. And, uh, you know, what to, to, you really have to educate your user about what to do when the disk is full and that the program isn't going to run correctly, you know, windows won't run correctly. So there's, there's one thing, but uh, other, other, another one I heard Alan Cooper mention at one of his talks back in, this was in the nineties. And he said, give your program an intelligent memory, you know, and I can't tell you like how many times I've been using something like even Adobe audition or premiere or one of those big programs, right? This is Adobe software. Yeah. And I go to software. Yeah. And I go to create a new project and I pick the directory and I pick a new directory where the project is going to go. Right. So then when it comes time to create my final product, I pick a directory and it's defaulted to the last projects folder. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) <laughs> the one place you wouldn't want to put it. Yeah, that's right. And that's the default because, well, that's where you put it last. But I'm in a completely new project now. Right. Maybe, Little things like that drive me crazy. Maybe they could guess that you want to be one or two folders up from there. Yeah. You know, but that would be better than this one you know is wrong. Or how about the folder where the rest of my files are for this project? That would be a good start. Now you're just being difficult. Yeah. Uh, writing good error messages is hard. Error messages can be for two audiences, too. I mean, you can write them for programmers or you can write them for users, and those should be two different things. Yeah. And if your error message isn't helpful to the user and, or or uh, makes them feel good about how the program is running, even if it's not doing well, you know, you can provide some humor, you can do some other things when the program's not working right that are a better user experience. But if it's not doing that and it's not helping a, a programmer actually diagnose and fix the problem, then it's, I would say, worse than useless. Yeah, and I would, yeah. I would also say, Steve, and you probably I can agree or disagree, but the the reason that these things stick around is because a lot of developers who don't understand logging or do anything intelligent with their errors they just want to throw up a message box to show them what's what the problem is so they can you know debug it right and they just leave that stuff in when it goes to production right so a log is for the developer 
And the message that pops up or however it shows is for the user. Exactly. Yep. Occasionally you blur that line a little bit if your user for this instance is going to need the assistance of someone else. Mm-hmm. And then you'll provide them some code so they can call into some support line and they can adjust something based on that error message if you need a human intervention. But, uh, yeah, yeah but the modern often, way would be to pump it to a log that gets picked up by tech support so that it's available. Yes. Right. Exactly. I like the idea of user gets an error and then their phone rings. Hey, we saw you got an error. Let me help you with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That might okay, a little creepy, but powerful. <laughs> I love the vertical slices one. I think I think everything about that is wonderful. We'll start with the icing. We can make the cake later. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, I don't know who came up with that idea, but that was, you know. I think that was Mr. Campbell. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he likes it so much. You like the, I, the visual we got for that one, Richard? I think the visual's great. Yep. A plate of icing? That's hilarious. I thought it was, like, sausage at first. It just kind of <laughs> looks really <laughs> gross. But it's, uh, yeah, some icing squirted out of a little icing thing on a plate. And then you've got a cake mix bag opened in a bowl. And then in the background, a cake. Yeah, the vertical slices is a an important concept, I think, in how we, we deliver software. And, and the idea is that you're constantly delivering things the user can actually do something with and give you feedback right. on. It comes back to that reducing the feedback loop bit. Yeah. The, the worst way to build software, in my opinion, is to... You know, go spend a few months and build your data layer or, or no, go spend a few months and build the database first, right? right? Yep. Then spend a few more months and build all the store procedures and the data layer and then spend a few more months and build this awesome business layer. And you haven't even started on the UI yet. And right. now, assuming you still have any budget or, or any users left that haven't gone to your competitors, now you start thinking about what the users are going to actually see and then all of it changes. Yep. Yeah. I, I, would, I would say if you're going to do it that way and layer by layer, you should start with the UI. But even that isn't a good idea. I mean, you, you sort of have to have some UI, but enough for one slice and then take it all the way down. That's exactly it. Yeah. Because uh, even if you started at the top, it would take you a long time to get the whole front end worked out. And then all it takes is something in the business layer needs to get changed for whatever reason. And that whole UI you just wrote needs to get adjusted. And you don't even have the data layer or the database set up yet. So you pretty much have to do it all again. And plus it's... Whatever you build first, you're going to tend to start putting logic into. So if you do start on a UI, you're going to put too much smarts in the UI. Like really thinking through intelligent business objects, a real smart API, so that the clients can be as dumb as possible, so they can be changed, because look at the world we're living in. The clients are going to change all the time. That's a lot harder to do. I, I, I even think that first vertical slice, we're seeing this in already right now. We've taken this first slice that's like the minimal viable product. It's going out in the field. It's getting its butt kicked. People just are using it differently than intended. And already we're looking at refactoring architecture. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to announce our new calendar. Oh, what's that? The Mamditten calendar. The what? M-A-M-D-T-N. Middle-aged male developer tasteful nudes. <laughs> don't do it ah. put it on put it all on <laughs> actually it's time to give away a experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club but first become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries 
and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is David Tosselhoff. Oh, congratulations, David. The Toss. Golf left. friends too. call him. The Clappers. Yeah. And uh, David just won the D-Experience subscription, a huge pile of awesome from Developer Express. If you don't know what we're doing, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. you got to sign up to win, and no, I'm sorry, this isn't the show where we announce the winner. Right. But it's coming up. We're not going to say soon. when. You just got to keep, gotta keep listening. <laughs> we also like to ask our guests, uh, Steve and Brendan. Let's start with you, Steve. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Uh, I think I'd probably upgrade, uh, maybe get a 4K monitor or two. Um, and uh, I, I've got a tiny TV in my living room, so I think I'd probably go and splurge and get one of the new super thin uh Really big TVs for for that. Okay, more so screen technology. Yeah, it's all about displays. Brendan, so I'm pretty much sold on uh, getting myself a Microsoft Surface Book at this point, Ooh. and uh, that uses up a good chunk of that. I would say. Yeah, fully loaded. Better part of three K. Yeah, exactly. So I think I'd probably go with one of those. Uh, and um, do they make you pay extra for the keyboard, like with the Surface? No, nope. no, that's actually built it's, in. That's, that's why it's 3K. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, they it's, have it a, is uh, expensive, but it, you know, yeah. I mean, it's literally MacBook Air pricing. But uh, you know, it's it's got some serious horsepower. Uh, the other thing I've done with mine, if you want to spend a little more money, is I added an Asus 169B Plus portable monitor. So this is a 15 inch 1080p IPS display that runs and is signaled off of USB 3. So single cable, no brick, just plug it in, second monitor. Yeah, that's on my list for travel too. And it, and it's about a pound. It just it doesn't weigh anything. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm very very happy with it. Yep, good stuff. <laughs> it's no 3000 by 2000 display like what's on the um the book, but it's uh it's good. It's clear. All right. We yeah. guess we should dive back into this thing because I think the next one up was common architecture. You know, and you were just mentioning that, Richard, um, that you were having to re-architect things in response to sure. feedback that you got. And The power of the vertical slice is getting feedback from the customer when they're actually using the code. Not what they think they're going to do, what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the, the challenge that you run into on some projects, especially bigger projects that have gone through a few refactor attempts, is that the architecture starts to be you know, con convoluted. And, you know, there's, there's been three different lead developers on this project and each one wanted to architect it their own way. Uh, and so you end up with this mishmash of some parts of the system are architected one way and some another. Uh, and it gets to be very difficult to, to do anything in a consistent fashion. Yeah. And you start playing this game of, you know, heaven help you if you've got a, a, a chunk of code that speaks to two of the architectures and you're just going to, it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. I was going to say, I worked on a piece of code recently that had five different ORMs in it. 
that was a little bit of a nightmare. Oh, wow. Man, dude. Yeah. That's a lot of Vietnams. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is an old reference. <laughs> How do you, I can't even name five RRMs. Let's think about this. <laughs> EF and Hibernate, uh, LLBL Gen. What's left? Get the micros. Yeah, you got to get micros. Micros? Dapper, Petapoco. Uh, you could oh, say Link to SQL. That's that's oh, yeah, probably okay. got a lot of code out there. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's six. Say, Everybody, you know, and what a great aspect of architectural decision making, right? It's like here's how we're going to get to data. No, you can't just roll your own all the time. Well, and it also comes down to how many places in your code need to know about that. Yeah. Like if if, if you've got a thousand different places in your code that you're referencing a particular dependency like an ORM or like a logger, uh, you know, when that comes time to change, it's going to be a pain. But Steve, I want to give my developers freedom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. And, and everybody wants to say, well, we're never going to change off of SQL Server, so we shouldn't have to worry about changing from EF. Like, you can stay on SQL Server all you want. Microsoft's still going to change their data access technology every 18 months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But they're changing EF every six, so. <laughs> yeah. What are they, at version seven now? Good Lord. At least they're doing it in, in public so you can see what's happening, what's coming. Well, if I could describe this picture, it looks like an old world stone building, like a municipal building or something. That's about, I don't know, two or three stories high. And then on top of that is this modern glass skyscraper. A beautiful Photoshop job, I might add. Yeah, somebody worked hard on that shadow. That's brilliant. Shadows are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Where, if you don't mind, where is that skyscraper? It kind of almost looks like a Microsoft building. I don't even know. Um, we we looked for stock images, and and I know uh, Wendy did some work on finding these as well. Hmm. So I, I'm not sure where that is actually a picture from. Yeah, and yeah. The, and the angles are matched. It's just a great job. Very challenging piece yep. it's not, yeah it's not easy to do shadows like that well i think it turned out great yeah, yeah, it did. It looked yeah. Really nice. very cool picture and it would stop and make me look twice if i saw that in the real world i'd be what the <laughs> what are you what are you guys doing <laughs> all right should we keep moving yeah should we keep moving yeah should I'm we good. keep moving yeah <laughs> I will not repeat myself. I will not repeat myself. I will not repeat myself. I will not repeat my. I will not repeat myself. Don't repeat yourself. Now you make a fairly serious statement. This is probably my favorite principle because uh, I think it underlies so many other principles in software. Yeah. Let's just put it this way: this is the core of pretty much every solid principle and everything else. Yeah. At the root of every bit of refactoring we do, it's don't repeat yourself. Now, did you say core because there's a picture of an apple on an yes, eraser of a chalkboard where, you know, somebody has written in chalk, I will not repeat myself. Well, at least it's the chalk font. <laughs> do, do we give away the secret about this one, Steve? Go go for it. All right. So you guys have seen our previous calendars, right? Sure. Yep. How many of our previous calendars have you guys seen? All four of them? I think so. Have they all had a don't repeat yourself in them? The positive ones have. (laughs) (laughs) So you repeated yourself in the calendars. Twice. (laughs) There is an argument that don't repeat yourself bears repeating. Yes. 
I've I've made that comment in uh, in talks. Uh, <laughs> We we have uh, changed it up slightly. So if you compare the calendars, you'll see different apples. Uh, oh, okay. An apple upgrade. Mm. Well, yeah, because Apple comes out with a new version every year, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dry principle. Been around a long time, and there's a reason yeah. for it. It really does bear repeating. It's one of those things that's just like, are, are you really going to write that code again? Really? Yeah. And in, in, in particular, writing the same block of code, the same, uh, you know, two or three times in a single solution just doesn't make I'm any sense. I'm even thinking larger, like the debate we recently had around JSON schemas. Really? Yeah. We're going to do that again? Yeah, yeah. Stable dependencies. This is a great picture. Building is easy when the foundation is strong. And this is an anti-pattern if I've ever seen one. It's a laptop computer with a basketball on it and then a Jenga uh, statue or whatever you call it. A Jenga formation on top. Jenga, that game of wood blocks where you, you sort of have to pull out one block at a time without the whole thing falling over. And uh, kudos to you for that because... That looked like it wasn't an easy shot to make. It took a long time to get the Jenga to stay on top of the basketball. <laughs> so you were obviously <laughs> you were obviously giving it downward pressure or something. Otherwise, That's right. I think you photoshopped the crap out of this. That's what I think. <laughs> what? Hey, what kind of accusation is that? <laughs> yeah, but the shadow is awesome. You should check the reflection, man. I think the reflection's backwards. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, reflection's oh, backwards. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, the stick yeah. sticking yep. out should be close, not far. There you go. It's close, you know, yeah. Flipped you guys just right kind of come the, to the us next time. That it's not backwards. Uh. <laughs> it's backwards from how it should be, but it's not backwards from the image. Right. We meant <laughs> yeah. to do that. It's yeah. all intentional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally is. Yeah. That's a, that's a light dependency right there. That's right. Now, the idea with this one is just that when you're writing your code, you want to have the things you're depending on uh, be more stable than the code you're writing. Um, right. And you know, whether that's your, your framework, you know, you're, you're building on top of the .NET framework or you're building on top of, um, you know, windows or, or some other platform, you don't want to be building your, you know, application software on top of something that's shifting around all the time. Uh, trust me, I've been working with ASP.NET five for the last year and that's oh, been man, a, dude. a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think they exaggerated when they said beta. <laughs> yeah, a I little mean, bit. Yeah, that a little more like alpha kids. I mean, they're release candidate now, and I kind of believe in the release candidate. But before that, holy man! Mm. Now it's going to be awesome when it ships in a few months. Yeah, well, the RC the RC is pretty impressive. We've been very happy with it, so I'm, I'm I'm pleased with the outcome on this. The only challenge you get into with the whole stable dependencies issue is you also don't want to block people from being able to code. So, you know, we get into these situations where I, I want my UI developers building the UI, but the business objects aren't finished yet. We've mocked up a set of objects, but they could and probably will change. Right. Well, if you can agree on the interfaces, then that makes a big difference. Right. And then the implementation can change however it wants. The other thing that I think helps this a lot in the .NET space that wasn't really true uh, as recently as like five or six years ago is the the shift we're making toward using packages for things like with NuGet, right. um, where you could depend on a particular version 
of something. And a lot of organizations are starting to adopt NuGet internally more and more, well, which helps with intra-project dependencies quite a bit as well. Yeah, and getting that whole configuration as code mentality means you're you're declaring your dependency coherently too. I don't just want this package; I want this version of this package, mm-hmm. so that you really know where you're going. And it's also this. Then this gets away from this whole mentality of replacing things, right? We we've got enough disk space; just keep all the versions. It's not a big deal. You can upgrade all you want. You just don't force me to upgrade unexpectedly. Yes, exactly. So it's not the code never changes, is that I know when it's going to change. And I change it in a way so that and when it does change, I can choose not to take that change. And when things change, schedules change, update the plan. <laughs> Good seg. <laughs> Hope is not a plan. <laughs> that's that's August. Yep. Yeah, I love that tagline. That's great. Yeah. And and what we're looking at is a calendar. Where there's something every weekday from uh, the 2nd of August to the 23rd of August to the 24th of August, and they're all crossed out. Release V1.1, release V1.1, release V1.1, release V1.1. And what does it say for real this time? Release V1.1. <laughs> no, we mean it. <laughs> yep. New date release V one point one. This was another one that um, was a community suggestion, and and the person that suggested it told like a little story in their suggestion. Uh, and the idea behind this is that you know you've got this plan that something's going to release on a certain date. And, you know, circumstances change, but very rarely does the plan actually get updated um, right. and because it's it's set in stone or, you know, marketing is depending on it or whatever. Um, and so the day comes and you're not going to make the release because the code's not ready. So what do they do? Okay, well, we'll just push it back till tomorrow. And nobody necessarily stops and thinks, well, what's a realistic release date knowing what we know today? Yeah. And, and adjust accordingly. Well, and, and if you've waited till the day of delivery to finally admit you're not going to make the day, somebody needs to lose their job. This is ridiculous. <laughs> like, you knew a long time before this day. Yep. I also yep. love the meta quality of this photo because the calendar yeah. in the photo is the calendar you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, we had to use some time travel to make that one happen. Uh, right. <laughs> It's calendar inception. It's uh, great. Your release days are going slower and slower. <laughs> that's why we're yep. missing the date. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too funny. All right, we're running, we're running out of time, guys. We got to finish this. Yeah, let's move on. Go ahead, Carl. Rubber duck debugging. Before you ask me, ask ask the duck. <laughs> and. Uh, this sort of goes back to the what the second one about clear error messages. Object reference not set to an instance of an object. And then there's a little rubber duck on the keyboard, and he's kind of looking like he doesn't really know. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So this is one of our favorites uh, just because of that idea about teaching that we talked about. Yeah. Which is, as soon as you start explaining your idea, doesn't matter whether you're talking to that duck or any other developer on the team. As soon as you're just shouting into Twitter. Yeah, exactly. You could shout it to Twitter. And as soon as you hit that send button, you immediately know 
this is what went wrong. This is where my code is not doing what it needs to. And you've right. got the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Just articulating the problem in a different way. Talk to the dog. Like, talk to something. Yep. Doesn't matter what you talk to. As long as you work it through in your head one time. Yeah. Usually will pop out. <laughs> Uh, the quote from Brian Kernigan is awesome, too. Debugging is twice as hard as writing code in the first place. Therefore, if you write code as cleverly as possible, you are, by definition, not smart enough to debug. It. <laughs> You'll need the help of your duck at that point. That's it. You need a duck. <laughs> All right. Yagni. It may look like overkill, but I'm sure we'll need it eventually. Yeah, it's a great picture. going to need it. Yeah. Yeah, and the picture is of this little, I would, I wouldn't even call, call it a stream. Yeah, a crick. A little crick. And it's not even a crick. I mean, you know, I, I think of it's a crick. It's a dribble. Yeah, it's a dribble. It's probably, I don't know, less than a meter wide at the biggest, at the widest part of it. And then there's this enormous bridge built over it. Yeah. You ain't going to need it. So, in other words, don't try to predict the future and build stuff that we don't need now. Yeah, now that means you always want to code for uh, agility so that it can be extended in any which way when the time comes, but don't build the bridge before you need it. Right. Yeah. Well, it's almost certainly the wrong bridge, too. Yep. I mean, you may know someday we're going to need something bigger here, but you don't know what that something's going to be. Right. Yeah, and this this is pretty much just like an over-engineering approach of Yagni. We've mm -hmm. done Yagni before on other calendars, but it was mm -hmm. uh, a different visual. And, and this one was like to sort of talk to the idea that you're going to write this thing because, oh, my gosh, it's going to have the same amount of traffic as Stack Overflow or Twitter, and it's going to need massive scale. So we're going to write everything to, to be massively scalable before we have a single user. You know, that kind right. of over-engineering effort that might make it so you never actually get to market. Or you miss yeah. your window. Yeah, you never ship. Soap. <laughs> Sorry. That's something in my chest here. I couldn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Better to get it out the door, touching the customer, and then fix, fix, fix. Yeah. And you build the code well in the first place, it won't be that hard to change it. Exactly. All right, Richard, yep. do the next one. Broken windows. We called this one out earlier because it was on FeedHub. It was a suggested one. And the picture is lovely because it's a, it's one of those very nice fancy buildings that's all glass and every window is shattered. I suspect <laughs> this is a Photoshop job, but, uh, it conveys the concept. And the tagline is awesome, right? The just ignore the hacks. That seems to be the standard. Yep. This is actually not a, uh, a Photoshop. Whoa. This, this is a real building in St. Petersburg, uh, and it's, uh, uh, what's it, Public Commons? What's Creative Commons? Yeah. But the license is free to use. Um, we found it on uh, Wikimedia, and so we've got wow. the, the attribution there on, on the side of the picture. But it is a, a gorgeous picture. Yep. And, and it's, it's a beautiful uh, building to have every window shattered out of it. Yeah, I know, right? I do not want to know who owns this building, because... Owned. Somebody's annoyed with them, clearly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody owns it now. It's clearly abandoned. Yeah. But that that broken window concept, I think it originally came out of New York, right? Was this whole idea of the broken window 
and nobody fixing it leads to the litter, which leads to the graffiti, which leads to the crime and, and so forth. It's like this lack of care has long-term consequences. That's exactly it. Right. I mean, there's been some debate about the police tactics used in response to that theory recently um, this year. But I think the underlying principle is sound. Um, yeah. When I was in the military, they would say that if you are you know, an NCO and you know what the standard is for what you know someone's uniform ought to look like, if you walk by and, and see someone's uniform that isn't to the standard, you've just set a new standard. You know, failing right. to enforce the standard is setting a new standard. Mm. Is setting a new standard. That's exactly right. When we wave our hands past stuff we know isn't compliant with the way we want our code to be, we are endorsing our code doesn't have to be like mm-hmm. that. Exactly. All right. All right. And finally, the Boy Scout rule. Leave your code better than you found it. And this is an interesting picture. And it took me a minute to get the simplicity of it. But you're looking at uh, a lake or a pond. And there's somebody out on the pond in a boat. And in the foreground, there's a lot of boats that are that are on it. What did you call that? A piling? Just a... Sure. Yeah. Sure. The, 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 they're above ground racks made of wood that boats go upside down on when they're not being used. And uh, am I wrong in thinking that, you know, you probably came to the lake and the boats were all just up on the shore and, and whatever. So you went out in your boat and you came back and somebody has neatly put them back on the pilings. Sure. Am I wrong there? We did not go out on the lake. Um, I just <laughs> thought it was an excellent picture. Uh, and it had an, some nice color and, and some other things. And and we've actually used this Boy Scout rule in a previous calendar. And in that case, we used a stock photo of a, uh, a campground and a, a fire yep. pit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't want to use that again or, or some other stock photo. We wanted to do something we shot. So mm-hmm. this is a, a photo I took in a, at a park nearby. Um, and we just liked it because it had some color and some visual interest and kind of showed that things were picked up, things were organized, mm. everything was yeah. lined up. Yeah. It ties to the broken window rule very well too, right? It's like somebody, there's no garbage on the ground. The boats are neatly stacked. They've been cleaned. Like things are better. Yep, exactly. So the, the fun bit I want to point out about this one is uh, this park is actually the place where we did all the brainstorming for all of the ideas that we used in the calendar. So we were actually on a, on a bench, like a hundred yards from where this picture was taken, uh, as we came up with all the ideas for the calendar. So that's converted concept into picture. Well, plan. Yeah. But yeah, Boy Scout rules that, that mentality that leave code better than you found it. That's a tough one to visualize. We all get it, but it's not an easy representation. Steve, Brendan, do you guys want to do a shout out to any of your uh, sponsors for this? calendar oh yeah we uh we definitely had some help um not just with the kickstarter backers but also some companies really uh came in tmw which is a a trimble company that's actually local here in ohio um was a huge sponsor and really helped make the the kickstarter happen so big thanks to them um my previous employer falafel software was also a backer um the software guild which is a, a sort of an academy boot camp um style training company uh, was also a sponsor. We're going to be giving these uh, calendars away at CodeMash, like we have done every year that we've had them. Uh, and CodeMash was was a sponsor for us as well this time around. Great. Uh, then we also had a couple of other sponsors, uh, OEC. Uh, and uh, then we had, well, I guess another sponsor, DevIQ, that uh, is, well, 
you, <laughs> Steve. <laughs> and um, then uh, last but not least, uh, our sponsor on there, .NET Rocks. Yeah. So, those guys. Those guys yeah. aren't good for anything. <laughs> those guys were a big help, and we appreciate the they're letting us come on their show and and bore people with our opinions about software craftsmanship. <laughs> so where do I get these, Steve? Well, if you weren't a Kickstarter backer, you can also pick these up on Amazon. If you just do a search for software craftsmanship calendar, you should find it. Um, we'll make sure the link is uh, attached with the show notes as well. For sure. Um, but they'll be available while supplies last on Amazon. The perfect geek Christmas present. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for helping us uh, figure out how to shoot our middle-aged male developer tasteful nude calendar. That was really helpful of you. And, <laughs> and it was and, great uh, for Steve to sign on to be the editor, to go through all the photos and help pick which ones would be yep. the best. And it turns out up. none of them actually made the calendar. They just uh, <laughs> took some pictures of some Chippendales or something and put them on yes. there. Okay. Guys, thanks again. It's been great. Congratulations on the calendar. Uh, Steve Smith and Brendan Enrich. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time bomb.